All right, I want to start with a video today that I think you're going to enjoy. It's become pretty trendy these days to migrate from the old ideas of evangelism, which were very program-driven, into relational evangelism. And I think, by and large, that can be a very healthy thing because it's more in tune to the biblical model. And last week, we saw that right in the midst of this book on how to survive hardship, Peter talks about living such a good life before the world around us that even though they may persecute you, in the end, by what they see, they'll end up coming to faith. They'll be side by side with us, rejoicing and worshiping God together. That's the biblical model, but unfortunately, when you put it in the hands of people that are still stuck in the program phase, it can become very impersonal. We can do it for all the wrong reasons. There's an interesting book that I think every Christian ought to read. It's entitled, When Bad Christians Happen to Good People. This video pictures a little bit of that. Just watch it for a few moments. Hi! It's your neighbors, Jim and Julina Sanders. From next door. How are you? Hey, hey, we totally know that you don't like going to church with us, so we're not even here to invite you to church, all right? We're not even here to tell you the four little happy hops to heaven. We're not even here to, to sell you fire insurance. You know from down there? Get that hell? Yeah. No, no, no. Hey, 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 hey. Honestly, honestly, yeah. what we want to do right now is we just want to serve you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. That's, that's a good thing. Oh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Now, we know that you don't get us, no. and why should you? You're a heathen. That's we get right. that, all right? Yeah. yeah. So what we want to do is just be here to understand you and to serve you in yeah. some ways. You know, what can we do for you? That's what Jesus asked all the time. Yeah. Now, we noticed on your mailbox that you had some balloons out there. Did someone die? Did someone die? Can we offer some condolences? No. Oh, you had a baby. Oh, oh. oh. Pink means joyfulness. I, I yeah, get it. I, get it. I told you. <laughs> okay, now how about this? Can we wash something for you? You're yeah, probably tired. Oh, that's a great Maybe idea. we could wash your dishes. Yeah, or, or wash your car. W- w- wash, wash the lawn. Wash, wash the mailbox. mailbox. Wash the dog. Oh, he said wash the dog. We could even wash the washer for you. <laughs> not. Oh, he said not. I love putting that word at the end of a sentence. Oh, do it again. Do it again. I got nothing. Not. Oh. He said what I did, I brought the comedy back around. I brought the comedy. I'm sorry. No, really. How about we not do any of that, but we just come to do what we should do, and let us just wash your feet. Yeah, because, you know, wait, hang on. I'm not done. Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and so we want to wash your feet. Yeah, we we know you're not our disciple. Yet. All right, one more do is I just got this water basin here yeah. and I just want to wash your foot. Yeah. All right, stick out so your big toe. Just stick out your big toe. Come on, no, no. This will be over in just a minute. If yeah, you just, it's get, just take yeah. a second. Okay, now I got the shoe. Now just give me your toe. Yeah, all right, just, come on, just give me your toe. Well, that's a fine howdy do. I know. All right, well, we'll just leave the shoe here. We'll leave the brownies. I guess we'll go next door. Okay, can I can I talk more this time? It's not your place, baby. Okay. What a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> Doesn't that make you feel great about yourself? Yeah, sometimes I just wonder how we come across. You see, it's it's never been about programming. It's always relationship. Serving others has to come from a heart that's been turned into a servant. I suspect that when we reach out with the hands and feet of Jesus, we're starting from a posture of mistrust. And all too often we have earned that mistrust. 
Peter's saying to effectively engage in the lives of people around us. Remember who God loves, who Jesus died for. Remember that it's his heart reaching out through us. Peter says, you live this life in front of people, but it's got to be real. Last week, we ended up in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, talking about lives that are authentically transformed into being Christ-like. Why don't you turn there with me? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good, and he must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what we saw there were nine checkpoints for the spiritual journey, ways that God wants to work in us authentically so that we reflect Christ. That's what the world is watching. See, as we live with one another and live with people around us in a way that they see the authentic Christ and are drawn to that Christ, So now Peter finally, after spending three and a half chapters not talking about how to deal with hard times, but just laying a solid foundation for life itself, that our hope isn't touched by life circumstances, our joy isn't touched by it, God's call to live a godly life, fulfill our purpose and find fulfillment in it, none of that is touched by life circumstances. If we're looking for ways to really deal with hardship, all this, you may feel, has skirted the issues, but it hasn't. It's laid a foundation. Everything we've learned at this point so far is essential to have in order to handle the most difficult circumstances of life. It's the foundation. It's the difference between having built our lives on the sand, as Jesus said, or having built it on the rock, which is Christ and the life that we have in him. Now that he's laid that, he said, now I want to talk to you about ways that you should respond to hardship, to difficulties in life. Let's begin reading at verse 13. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in the prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah." while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. I want to deal with the weirdest part of this passage. And yes, it's okay to call the Bible weird sometimes, because... 
And that's the part we just read that speaks about the specific instance Jesus went and preached to those who were before the flood. Now, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think about this. I don't have a clue. (laughs) There's a lot of speculation about this. This is one of those rare statements where there were certain things that are being taught that has percolated its way up into Scripture, but not in a way that's really taught. It's just merely referred to. Consequently, it's not that type of teaching where we try to draw out doctrine. That would be the worst thing you could do when you come to a difficult passage like this is to take it out of context and give it a life of its own. We need to first begin with what we do know, what Scripture teaches as truth, and then come at this passage. And so the truth is it could mean a number of things. I believe that in some way it reminds us of God's fairness. It also reminds us there are things and there are ways that God works that are beyond our ways. And sometimes we get a glimpse of them. And sometimes they don't fit into the boxes that we even think God has laid out clearly. And he gets to do that. You know why? Because he's God. And I think about trying to reach people for Christ and think about what happens in those moments of transition from life to death and things that we can look at and say, this just doesn't feel fair we can say, you know, there are just ways that God works I don't get. What I am is to be firm about the things God's clear about. In fact, in this passage is one of the most beautiful, concise statements of what we do know is truth. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. There's four really simple statements here that speak about what the good news is. What did he do? Christ died for sin. That's what the gospel's all about. Christ came to die for sin. It wasn't the mistake at the end of a well-lived life. It was the very purpose for which that life began in the first place. Christ died for sins. Second statement, once for all. Whatever Christ did, he got it done. His death on the cross finished the job. It was one of the last things Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. The work that he came to do was done. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, we no longer continue to sacrifice Christ over and over again. That's why as a church, we don't practice a mass because Christ died for sins once and for all. We don't re-crucify him. We celebrate the Lord's table to commemorate, to celebrate, to remember as Jesus taught us. Christ died for sin once for all. Who did he die for? The righteous for the unrighteous. Christ was the righteous one. He died for the unrighteous. Please, would the unrighteous in here please raise your hands? Exactly. Died for all of us because all have sinned. Question four, why did he do it? To bring you to God. See, sin had separated us from God. Isaiah 59, 2, your sins have put a separation between you and me. Your iniquities have caused me to even turn my face from you. I don't hear you. The relationship with God that we were created to have was broken by sin. Christ's death pays for that sin and makes it possible, as Paul says, for us to be reconciled to God. Broken relationship restored. 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting our sins against us. That's the gospel. That we hold to. That was a little sermon within a sermon because I don't think you ever come to the gospel and just glance over it. 
Our life is rooted in it. Our life in Christ is birthed through it. It's sustained by it. It's inspired by it. (laughs) And the gospel is something that continues its transforming work in us. To jump back into the whole of this passage now is to see that particular reminder of Jesus himself as one of four recurring ideas that show up in this text that are the basis for helping us respond to hardship. The first thing is the reminder that God will have the last word. We're looking at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Remember, God doesn't miss anything. He sees the suffering of his children, and he sees the evil actions of those that come against his children. And in the end, he will have the last word. Back in uh, chapter 2, 23, he reminds us that that's exactly what Christ did. Christ put himself in the hand of God who will act justly in the end. In chapter 4, verse 5, which we'll come to, I think, next week, he says, they have to give account to him who was ready to judge the living and the dead. The recurring idea here is that God will have the last word. He sees it all, and in the end, he wins. And we win with him. So our response to that is to remind ourselves that we need to have an eternal focus. People that have the hardest time responding to difficulties, especially death of friends and loved ones, are people that have lost sight of the eternality of life. And that's why death seems so tragic, because we feel like it's a life that has been cut short. It hasn't. I think I've told you this story, but when I was a teenager, my dad was a pastor, and every New Year's Eve, we would have a Vespers, and we'd sing our way into the New Year's, and I remember Howard, every Christmas Eve, he'd want to sing Amazing Grace, and he'd say, preacher, when we get to that last verse where it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, I want us to sing, when we've been there 10 zillion years, bright shining as the sun. As a junior higher, I used to think, that's the corniest thing I've ever heard in my life, good old Howard. And my dad would have us all sing it, and we get to that last line. Let's try it out. When we've been there 10 zillion years, bright shining as the sun. Right. And back then I used to think, wow, that's just so, so weird. <laughs> well, you know, now I'm 55. I've lost my mother. I've lost my great-grandmother. I've lost a nephew that lived about 16 days In our family, we face life and death situations. I'm looking at a life now where I've got less on the front end of me than I have behind me. And now I think Howard was one of the wisest men I have ever met. And there are times I just find myself thinking, almost every time I hear Amazing Grace, when I've been there 10 zillion years, bright shining as the sun, I'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when I first began. It's that God who holds all of eternity and this brief life that is but a vapor in his hands who says, I will have the last word. You can count on it, and you want me on your side. That's one of the recurring ideas in here. God will have the last word. A second one is that, and this is a general principle that it's hard to argue. Good living equals less suffering. 
Well, just think about that for a minute. Look, look with me at verse 13 where, where Peter writes, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? It's generally true. If we live a good life, we tend to have fewer issues. It's not to say that we don't face difficulties. But let me give you some examples of this. If, for instance, you pay your bills, <laughs> if you handle your money well, if you live within your means, if you don't overextend yourself so that you're paying more than you've got coming in, if you're a good steward, chances are the hard times financially don't hit you the same way they hit other people. See, here's another idea. If you take care of yourself physically, if you're careful what you eat, you get your sleep, you avoid stress, if you exercise, if we take care of ourselves, we tend to be healthier. If we help others, if, as Proverbs says, for a man to have friends, he must be friendly. If we're the kind that reaches out, chances are people will reach back and we'll have others to help us. That's what he's speaking about here. It's that general truth that if we do good, we tend to have less hardship. You know, a lot of us blame God for suffering that is not for Christ's sake. It's for stupidity's sake. <laughs> have you ever run into people where they, that you just know that their life is like an amplifier for hardship? The way they manage their life, the very same issues that you deal with come into their life and all hell breaks loose, metaphorically speaking. One of the things Peter's saying is, let's be honest. How we live does have impact. And we need to take responsibility for that. That's a general truth that will help us at least look at hardship more reasonably. What do I have to own about this? What could I have done differently? We love being victims. There's no growth from that position. The third thing he talks about, one of these four recurring ideas, is that unjust suffering is better than deserved punishment. Several times Peter addresses this, specifically verse 17 of our text today. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. There are things that happen to good people. I remember a um, French fairy tale of uh, two sisters, one bad, one good. As fairy tales go, the mother loved the bad sister more than the good sister who was mistreated. But one time the sister was getting water from the well, and a poor woman was there and asked for something to drink. And the good sister treated this poor woman so well, who was actually a fairy in disguise, that the woman rewarded her and said, every time you speak, flowers or jewels are going to come out of your mouth. Nobody could understand her from that day on, but she, you know. So she got home and she started talking and flowers and jewels were coming out of her mouth. The evil mother heard the story and so she sent the other sister out to that same well. While she was there, a beautiful princess shows up, also the fairy in disguise, and the evil sister treated her so bad that the fairy punished her so that every time she spoke, serpents or frogs came out of her mouth. That's justice. Don't you love that? Don't you wish that life was more like fairy tales where bad people always get punished and good people get jewels? Love that. But that's not life. That's exactly what Peter is primarily addressing here as we go forward. Since suffering happens, it's better to be able to say, I'm suffering in an undeserved way. It's like the back end of that first principle, right? Living good lives tends to result in less hardship. If I can say that, then when hardship comes, I can approach it knowing that I've at least done all I'm able to do. 
I'm suffering not for stupidity's sake, not for sin's sake. It's better to suffer for doing good. That's what he talks about. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. See, that's what we have to remember. And then fourth, the fourth recurring principle that Peter has is that Jesus stands as our example for dealing against hardship. And that's why he goes on again, and we read through the death of Christ and why he submitted, but the reminder is that he stood and was treated totally unjustly. He was the righteous, and yet he died as one who was unrighteous. God used that and was in his plan, but from man's perspective, it was a complete betrayal of an innocent man. Christ is our model. We always keep our eyes focused on him, and we don't lose heart. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. So with those four recurring ideas in place, now Peter just quickly works through five ways to handle difficult circumstances. And I want to run through them with you very quickly. The first, he says, is that you should consider yourself blessed by God. Look at verse 14. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Back to Matthew 5. Jesus said, blessed are you. James said, if you have to face hardship, do it with great joy. The Phillips translation of James 1 says, treat hardship as though they are a cherished brother, as a blessing from God. I was going to say a blessing in disguise, but no, it's right out there. The hardship is itself a blessing. Because there are things that God can do in your and my life only through those difficult circumstances. There is no growth without difficulty. There is no lessons learned without reaching the end of our abilities so that we have to fall completely into the arms of God. We need those moments of clarity. Consider yourself blessed by God. Second, don't panic and don't worry. Verse 14 at the end, do not fear what they fear and do not be frightened. So first, when I come to a difficult time, I need to start viewing it as a blessing, not an obstacle, not as a problem to be dealt with. And because of that, I'm not gonna have the two primary responses that all of us have when we face difficulty, and that is that we panic and we worry. The word fear is the word phobos. It's the word that we get, the word phobia. And it literally means to be seized with terror in a way that makes us want to flee. It kind of kicks in that, that flee and survive mechanism. If I recognize that God's in it, and I recognize he's going to use it for good, I don't quite have that terror, that fear, and the need to flight. I can stay in it because I know God's in it with me. He's going to use it. And the other word, uh, frightened, troubled, or agitated, see, We get agitated. We get like ornery. And then we get terrorized. We want to run. For me, I'll admit, those are probably my two knee-jerk responses to difficulty. I need to look back and say, okay, God's in this with me. I'm not going to do what by nature I want to do. I'm not going to panic. not going to worry. Third thing he says is that we need to acknowledge Christ as Lord over every event. Verse 15 But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. What Peter's saying is that every difficult situation is an opportunity for a spiritual gut check. How much do I really believe Christ is Lord of every situation? 
We need to make that moment sacred by giving it to God and saying, Lord, you are Christ of even this event. I see three ways that we do that. First, we acknowledge God's presence in the moment. Second, we submit to his purposes for that moment. And third, we rely on his power to survive and thrive in that moment. Lord, this is your moment. It's been given to me as a blessing. You're in it with me. None of it escapes you. You will have the last word. I will not fear. I will not panic. I will not run. And I surrender this moment to you. You're here you have a purpose in it, and you have what I need to survive it. The fourth thing he talks about is being ready to give a witness when the opportunity comes. Listen, people are watching you. There's no testimony about the living hope that is ours in Christ that is more powerful than a life that shows peace and calm and hope in the midst of life's difficult circumstances. And trust me, if Christ is showing up through you, and you're experiencing that peace in the midst of hardship, you know what's going to happen? People are going to come to you and say, how do you do it? I don't get it. I'd have gone crazy by now. I've watched people that my wife has invested in over the last two years or so, neighbors and the like that we've enfolded into our lives, watch us go through very difficult circumstances, but in particular my wife inevitably, as they have gone through hardship themselves, they see the difference. And what's been birthed out of that is an opportunity to speak about Christ, his love, his hope. It will happen. God's going to use that moment for more than your life. People will see the difference. We need to be ready. The word to defend is the word apologia. And it literally means to explain the reason for my stand. Then he says, do it with care and reverence, with care for the person listening, and we do it with reverence for the Christ who we are expressing. And then the final thing he talks about, the fifth thing in all of it, we need to make sure we keep a clear conscience. Look at verse 16. Keeping, uh, well, let's uh, read the middle of verse 15. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. When you enter difficult circumstance, one of the very first goals that you ought to make is that at the end of it, nothing will have happened by your response to the situation that would do anything except magnify the name of Christ. I want to be able to look back and have a clear conscience our faith is always human. Our, we do struggle with, uh, you know, with difficulty and sadness. All that's fine. You know, we're not talking about perfection here. It's just all about Christ and dependency on him. So I want to be able to look back and know that in the end, my response to the situation glorified Christ, made more of him, not less. I remember at the beginning of one of the more difficult seasons in my life, when I was still trying to weigh how I would respond to what was put in front of me, what came to me first, and I believe this was God giving me this, because I'm not sure at that moment I had it in myself to think about this. But I believe God gave me two very simple goals. I wanted to make sure that nothing that I did in that moment would damage the name of Christ. In fact, my goal would be that as far as I could respond to the situation, 
that God would be even more honored in this region. And the other thing was I wanted to make sure that however I acted, I did not harm the body of Christ, did not damage other people, brothers and sisters. I, I can look back at that situation, and even though even now talking about it, it still brings sadness to me. It still does. I got to tell you, I have a clear conscience. Not to say I was perfect. None of us are perfect. No circumstance is completely something that we're a victim of. We all contribute to them. But I do believe that I made that moment sacred, gave it to Christ. But I'm, I'm so grateful I can look back and have a clear conscience. See, just to repeat some of the things we learned a few weeks ago. You can't control life circumstances. You can control who you are in them. You can't control how people treat you, but you can control how you respond, right? You can't even dictate to how God's going to use it, but you can open yourself up to that loving work of God who uses all circumstances for good in our life. That we can do. And if we take that path, we will thrive. Life can't touch us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth in all of this. I just think about the people that Peter's writing to and the, the hope that they needed. And so grateful that we can benefit from this letter, your gift through the Holy Spirit, through Peter to these people, and now 2,000 years later to us. These eternal truths that you are always there, you are faithful. And we embrace the work you want to do in us. And as we do that, we ask also that you will work through us as people see how we respond to life circumstances. May they see the hope that is ours and find hope in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.